Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. It wasn't until the next day that I ended up calling the police because when I woke up at 6 a.m., my phone was still ringing. Like, it never stopped ringing. And um, I realized, like, this is not a normal situation. Like, this is not somebody that's having a moment. And this is not somebody that is just going through something. Like, something is really wrong with this person. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Another episode. Another episode, a powerful episode. Oh, yes. A wild episode. And before we get into our episode today, you had some personal things going on the last couple of weeks. I covered one of the intros for the show. And then do you want to share anything with our audience? So we went to my grandma's funeral yesterday, well, celebration of life. And it was, I think, a very hard day for both of us in different ways. I think you definitely cared about my grandma. I cared about her. And it's really interesting when someone dies, you don't realize how much you have to grieve. Sure. Absolutely. And it just throws a wrench in your life for a minute. Mm -hmm. And your brain is changed. I was very honored to be there. And um, I'm glad your family had me come. You know, I met Orlaine uh, many, many times, and she was always so wonderful and full of life and played the piano amazingly because she was a concert pianist. And, and, you know, it was wonderful to see so many people show up to the church to support her. And and I was telling my parents, they said, oh, did a lot of people show up for Tara's family? And I said, I said, no. I said, the majority of the people were there for Arlene. They were around her age, and they were people that had been impacted through her work through the church and all of the of uh, the charity work that she had done. And so those people were there. And it was really, really wonderful to see the impact is on, you know, when you think about, I think about mortality a lot, unfortunately, but when you think about like a legacy that you leave to see so many people show up for her in that way and have these wonderful stories to share about what an impact they made in her life, I thought that was really incredible. And we should all be so lucky to be remembered like that. Yes. And I had to do her obituary, but then I passed it over to you to correct <laughs> the grammar. Uh, so I ended up writing the obituary, um, but nobody told me that I was writing an obituary. I just thought I was supposed to help you with grammar. And I said, do you want me to punch this up? And you said, yeah. And so I made it. And it was quite lovely. I had no idea was, that it was actually going to be in anything or anyone was going to actually see it. I thought it was just for a thing. I didn't know. So I kind of just assumed you knew. <laughs> Nope. Don't know a lot about funerals. So uh, just, um, yeah. That is true. Yeah. No. And then I want to share a funny story because the last time we saw my grandma was Christmas. Yes. And my grandma was telling me and you, oh my gosh, I saw you guys in Palm Springs or something. Yes. She said that she had um, saw me. She was driving past in a car and I was walking down the street in Palm Springs. Oh. And she waved at me and you waved at me. And, and that's when she knew that we were all going to meet at some point. I think I've been to Palm Springs once, maybe about 15 years ago. 
<laughs> that was not. Yes, and I've never been there with my grandma. Yeah, so it was um, it was an interesting story. But your grandmother f- suffered from Alzheimer's and late late stage dementia, and I think a lot of times we think about dementia because I've seen dementia in older people, and they live. They're very paranoid. They're very scared. They don't know where they're at. They don't recognize people. And I remember I was telling your mom over Christmas how when she, she was telling us these random stories, they were always happy. They were always wonderful. And she was always very happy and pleasure to be around. And I said, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a, a parent or a loved one suffer from that disease, you should be so grateful because my my dear friend John, his father suffers from dementia and he gets very scared and he hides. It's so much for the family to be around because it's just it's painful to watch that happen. And yeah, to see someone who just lived with so much joy and had these absolutely wild stories about their life. And would share this stuff that that you knew that never happened, but they but they believe it happened. It was like, oh, okay. I would much rather hear that. But she was happy. She wasn't scared. She didn't was who is that person? I'm very afraid. And to see her be so happy and have such light in her, I think that's a blessing. Like I think we should all be so lucky to go out that way. I really do. I mean, she was 93. That's a life well lived. And yeah, judging by everyone who showed up for her yesterday, Arlene Palmer. Hart Holmes uh, had a Ambrose life well lived. too, and Ambrose, yeah, <laughs> Arlene Palmer, Ambrose Hart Holmes had a life well lived. My mom said my grandma had a sense of humor like Betty White. Mm-hmm. So my grandma one day told John that she was with two men last night, her husband, and her husband was like, "Well, I'm going to get a shotgun." <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I don't think she was ever with two men at a time. Yeah, it's not my business if she was. But <laughs> Thank you for the last grandma. So moving on, we have uh, our guest today is Aziza Murphy, who has suffered a horrific stalking story, and she shares it with us. She was just recently where, Tara? She was at the White House with Lenora Claire and Anna Nassett. Yes, and what were they doing at the White House? They were putting in laws and talking about how they could put laws around stalking. Yeah, and raise awareness on the on the presidential level to really enact change. And I think that's really good and and really important. It's an election year. There's a lot of political things going on, but it's nice to see that something that protects our citizens and people who are victims and survivors and seeing that kind of advocacy. That's that's a good thing. I can't get behind much in Washington, but I can get behind that. No, I can definitely get behind some stalking laws. We need a lot. Yeah. And then another thing about Aziza is that her stalker, but she went viral on social media about her story. And then she was able to get the help that she needed and the resources and had people reach out to her, which is, again, you know, social media is a very convoluted place. But um, when you share stories and you're, you're someone who's struggling you can find your tribe out there. You can find people who said, hey, girl, I've been through it. Let me help you with the resources that I have. And I think that's a really that's a really wonderful sort of ancillary benefit that comes from social media that we don't think of. You know, it, it can feel very solipsistic in a lot of ways. But to be able to have people come out and, and want to help you and, and help advocate for you and help you take back your life, that's really important and very cool. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm really excited to get into this episode. Yeah, let's get into Aziz's story. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get into it.
Aziza, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me today. Yes. Why don't you start to tell us about your story and why you're here today? So um, about three years ago, I started getting stalked by someone I dated for four months. Um, We actually met on Instagram, the great app, (laughs) Instagram. And I mean, when we met, it's so crazy. I was looking back at like past messages from us. And our first interaction was just actually about, it was actually about like how people don't know how to let go. And so he was agreeing with me. He's like, man, it's crazy. Like people don't know how to let go nowadays. And I'm like, wow, this person actually gets me. Like this person understands, like, you know, you need to move on after things are over. And at that time, um, I recently like lost someone I was dating. They were murdered right before I started dating him. So yeah, it was definitely very a vulnerable time for me. And um, so I opened up to him about it very, you know, soon. We dated for about four months. It wasn't that long, you know, it was like briefly dated. Um, He was living in New York at the time. I was living in Baltimore. So he would come down once a week to see me. And everybody always asks, like, like, you probably know, Tara, like everybody is always like, what were the red flags? Like, did you (laughs) see anything? And that's just like, of course there were red flags, but like having the wisdom that I have now, like I know them. But at that time, um, the only thing that I saw from him was that he was just super generous and super nice and very charismatic. And I remember feeling very like uncomfortable by it. Like I was like, this is a lot. Like this is, you know, like he bought me a new bed like weeks in, you know. Oh. Yeah. And I had just gotten a new bed and he was like, no, you need a new one. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is very nice. Like clothes for my kids and I'm like okay like maybe I just I I kind of remember thinking that maybe I'm just not used to being like loved this way you know I'm like maybe this is how it's supposed to be maybe you're supposed to be like adorned on in this way and that was kind of like I remember just feeling very uncomfortable with it but just not really trusting it because what are you going to do break up with a guy because he's too nice to you like (laughs) How do you explain that to your friends? Like, no, he's too nice, you guys. Like, I I didn't really know how to navigate that. Um, I didn't really see the switch in him until we broke up. And I remember that day because that is a day that is, like, life-changing. <laughs> like, that was, like, the pivotal day in the rest of my life um, of where I remember I was very sick that day and that was one of the days he came from New York to visit me. And I went to the doctors, I left him at my house while, you know, I was living with my mother at the time. I left him at my house. And when I came back, his energy was extremely off. Okay. Um, I dropped him off at the train station and he refused to get out of my car for hours. Like he just refused to get out. Like he was just like, no. And some of the wording that he was saying was like wording that I had used with my friends in text messages. And it kind of clicked like he must have gone through my iPad while I was gone. And for me, that was the red flag for me. Like like we, we hadn't gone through any issues or any troubles or any drama for him to have violated my privacy that way and that was when I decided to cut it off because I was like this is too much 
everything is too much. It's too soon. Um, finally, when he left my car, um, I stopped to get medicine. I got back to my house. He was outside of my house. And he was saying he left his wallet, but I remember thinking like, you didn't get out of my car for over two hours. Like I'm not letting you in my house. And, and that's a house that I share with my mother and my kids. Like, no, that is when the true nightmare kind of like began for me of where, um, you know, I started feeling very uncomfortable because I could see him walking around my house trying to gain entry into my house. Like he was going to every single door, every single window, knocking on every single thing. And still at that point, like I had a loving partner, like, you know, like I, I thought maybe he was just having a moment. Maybe he just needed to calm down. Um, but I remember feeling uncomfortable. So I started recording and that is when he broke the window into my kitchen and he stole the keys out of my kitchen. And even at that point, I, I don't remember feeling fear. I remember feeling confused. Like I was kind of like, what, like, what is going on with this person? And, you know, at that time he was telling me he had a brain tumor. He told me that he was having surgery, you know, um, you know, in a few weeks after that. And so I kind of attributed it to that. And I was like, well, maybe, you know, and I always talk about this, like the intersection of being a black woman you know, being black and being a woman of where I didn't want to involve the police because I didn't know how much it would escalate. And so I'm like, I have this, this nice guy that has a brain tumor that may just be overreacting in this moment. I don't want to involve the police. And I didn't want to, I didn't know what would happen to him or me. Um, that is when things kind of switched after he finally gave me back my keys and he finally left. Um, I started receiving messages from fake Instagram accounts and these same Instagram accounts had been writing me the whole time we were in a relationship. So like from the beginning, these accounts would write me things like, oh my gosh, are you on a date? That seems like such a cute date spot. I would love to go on a date there. You should keep whoever's taking you there. Like, are you with your boyfriend right now? I would love a boyfriend like that. Um, and I remember thinking it was weird, but those same accounts, as soon as, you know, things started happening, those same accounts were like, you're a terrible girlfriend. How could you fucking do that to your boyfriend? You know, like you deserve to die. Like I, in those same accounts, I realized they will only write me about him. And it clicked like these accounts are him. Like, why has he been orchestrating this whole narrative the whole time and I still don't think I understood the gravity of everything at that moment I was just kind of like wow like this is this is bizarre um within that first 24 hours he called me over a thousand times about 1065 times I counted um my Mom started receiving calls from this person in the first 24 hours, uh, my ex-husband's mom, my dad. I was getting messages from my family like, are you okay? Someone is texting me saying, where are you? Looking for you. Um, you know, everyone was extremely concerned for me. And it was at that moment that I realized that like he went through my iPad and got all of my contacts, my passwords, all of the information that was in my iPad that he had gotten um, 
And that was when I kind of like understood like this is like really, really serious. It wasn't until the next day that I ended up calling the police because when I woke up at 6 a.m., my phone was still ringing. Like it never stopped ringing. And um, I realized like this is not a normal situation. Like this is not somebody that's having a moment and this is not somebody that is just going through something like something is really wrong with this person. And I have two children. I have two small children. Um, when I called the police, the police came. He still was calling. The police talked to him on the phone and were like, stop calling her. And he still would not stop calling me. And um, he is a trans man. So he has multiple names. So they were not... Um, able to find like all of the names that he he's gone by and when they finally found him they told me that he had multiple warrants in multiple states that he had a restraining order for making terrorist threats against his ex in the state of Georgia um they told me that they saw a lot of fraud um in his past and they told me that I should take this very seriously and that if if he came back that I should use every force necessary and wow yeah that is um that is when my heart sunk because like I said I have two small children and I felt extremely guilty that like I brought my child like like how could I be in that situation I immediately reached out to his ex-girlfriend um that lived in Georgia and was like, what is going on? Like, please. And she told me, Aziza, like, there is a murder case here. There are things that are being investigated. I've been being stalked by this person. Like, get your kids and take them as far away as possible. And um, that, that day, <laughs> I will never forget that day being the day for me. Um, I took my kids to a hotel and I remember I have such loving kids. I remember um, my, my son seeing me cry and trying to make me feel better. And he's like, mom, like, look, we don't get to jump on the beds at home. We can jump on the beds here. He's like, we have two sinks here, mom. Like we have like, look at this big closet. Like he was trying to make me feel so much better about the situation, um, you know? And that was the moment like I decided to fight where I was like, you know, um, I, I can't like, you know, obviously he's done this to multiple women. I can't just allow him to continue to do this to multiple women. And um, from there, the stalking kind of, um, you know, that's when like the, the true stalking started of where he started showing up to my job. You know, he started sending my coworkers pictures of guns. He started commenting on my job's Instagram. I was receiving hundreds of messages a day. The guy that I was dating that was murdered, he started stalking his family and um, telling them that I was the one that murdered him and, um, you know, re-traumatizing them. I ended oh. up I ended up losing my job, you know, um, my job said it was too much of a liability to have me working there and have this situation happen. 
Um, and that's when I decided to take things into my own hands. You know, I saw early on the police, even though they came and told me how serious it was, they never filed a police report. Like they never filed charges. I had to go up and file charges myself and that fell through the cracks, but they've apologized to me now. Um, I saw that every single time I called the police, they didn't take it seriously. They're like, well, he hasn't killed you yet. So I doubt he will. Yeah. Um, you know, I was hearing all types of things like that. And so I posted on social media and this was like the plea for me and my family's lives of where I was like, if I die, like this is the person responsible for it. You know, like this person is threatening me. This person has caused me to lose my job. This person is causing chaos in my life. Um, you know, and the threats, of course, they started out vague. Like the threats were like, you'll be sorry. The last person that did this is no longer here now, which I'm pretty sure is a reference to the stuff that he had with his ex. Um, two, I'm going to slit your throat in front of your children. They're going to have to walk over your dead body. You're getting acid thrown in your face. Which child would you like to see die first? The best gift to your son would be not to wake up tomorrow. Like I was getting threats like that every single day. And the police were like, they considered it like nonviolent. Like they're like, well, these are non, this is a nonviolent crime. So I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just for clarification, this is in Maryland that this is yeah. happening. So you're still, so you're in Baltimore living with your mom. By the way, my aunt used to live on Lock Raven Boulevard. Okay, okay. So you already know. <laughs> and my mother is buried in, out in uh, Towson, I believe. Oh, in Towson. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but so the, it, when you said this person is coming to your job, so they were coming down from New York to your job? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have um, the train station is right there in the city. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like a quick train right away. And like, it was like, he would come multiple times a week. Like, I'm saying like almost like every day, come down from New York and take the train down to stalk me at my job. You know, he would stay at hotels. I would like track him. I had to do all the investigative work. I would track him down to hotels and the police still would not go get him because it's not a violent crime to go yeah. look for someone um, for stalking. Was this person affluent? I mean, did they have money to? Do? I mean, this seems just like it's such a a large expense. And I ask this because a lot of people don't consider that when you know with stalking mm-hmm. that people who are who partake in this behavior sometimes have unlimited resources to do this. I actually don't know. You know what's crazy? So like when I started dating him, it was during the pandemic. So, um, you know, of course it's like, I'm not like he, nobody was really working at the time. And he said he worked in production, but um, when the FBI didn't get involved, they eventually did get involved. Um, They told me none of that was true. Like all of the places that he said that he worked at, you know, I work, we worked at BET and, and, and worked for VH1 and all of these other places. They said that was not true. And so because of the fraud that did come up in his background, I think that maybe some of the money 
has to do with that. You know, I've case searched. I always case search and always look up things. And I'm seeing that he's now suing a medical company, you know. And so I, I think that some of the money could be coming from that. Um, I have spoken to his family. And so I don't really know much about his family, you know, outside of them not really accepting him. Um, I don't m know much about his family of, of where they come from, if they have money. But I remember thinking that of like, I never see you work, but how do you have so much money to buy these things for me and to travel? It seemed like he had unlimited money. I mean, I have a thought about that. He seems kind of like a grifter, like, you know, one of those, one of those coming. people that like, have you seen the idol? Yeah, 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 yes, yes. Like that character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, maybe. It's like, I, I really, I have so many questions, even about the brain tumor. You know, like, yeah. when we first started dating, he did disclose, like, oh, I have a brain tumor, and it causes me to have seizures and all of these things. But it's like no proof to, like, this tumor. And that was kind of what he would, you know, like... Like, I have a tumor. This is why I'm acting this way because of the tumor. Like, I, I don't, I, it's still like a mystery and it's still up in the air. I will never know at this point, you know? This, this is what happened to me. This, this person that I was stalked by said that they were terminally ill. And I don't know, even so much, not to be insensitive, but my, my adoptive parents were like, isn't, aren't they supposed to be dead? Yeah, like weren't, right? they, weren't they on their deathbed, knocking on death's door and 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 calling? How are they still around? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's, it must be a miracle. All of these people must have these extreme miracles from God. They must be the chosen ones because there is no way that you have this like debilitating brain tumor and you like he had brain sur. He was sending me messages from his hospital bed. Right. If he was like, I just had brain surgery, sending me, stalking me from the hospital bed and was like outside of my job two days later. So I really don't know what was really going on. I, I, I have no clue. I have no idea. Um, but that was kind of the excuse for for everything of like the tumor. It's like I can't control myself. And you had the police telling me making jokes like. Yeah, he has a brain tumor, you know, and I'm like, well, he's telling me that he has nothing to live for. So if he really does have a brain tumor, that's even scarier for me because he's saying he has nothing to live for and he's not going to stop until Absolutely. the police kills him. Absolutely. You know, you know, he was saying it's going to be a murder suicide because he thinks he's dying anyway. So this is making me feel extremely <sighs> unsafe and is making things worse like one of the worst things that he did was um he called my sister from my mother's phone number he spoofed the call i didn't even know what spoofing calls was until i met this person and he told my sister that he killed my mom that he had her phone and my sister called me and we thought my mom was dead for 15 minutes like we were like grieving and freaking out and panicking you know, and it was just like, I don't know if you guys seen Pretty Little Liars, but like the emotional manipulation and the emotional abuse that I went through that people don't understand of like every single day. And I mean, I know you guys understand, but like 
a lot of people don't of like it was just constant yeah. torture yeah. every day of what is this person going to do next to traumatize me so that <laughs> um luckily because of my taking things into my own hands i was able to get people to listen to me you know after losing my job i was able to get funds to sustain myself and to move and relocate um you know but my poor mother wasn't able to you know like she would barricade herself inside every day you know booby trap her house um i was able to get my kids out i was able to you know just take time to try to heal try you know <laughs> to heal as much as possible um, the mayor ended up getting involved and he helped me with um, getting an extradite approved from New York because that was the problem. He lived in New York. So New York police is like, you guys have to go like come arrest him. And Baltimore's like, no, you guys have to arrest him. And my FBI, the FBI got involved. My FBI agent was like, actually, I'll go up there and arrest him myself. And so wow. um, my FBI agent was the one that actually did the arresting, you know, at the end of the day, which if I could talk to him, I would thank him today of, for doing that. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Aziza Murphy. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.